0: Broadcasting live on WBAI New York, Pacifica Radio for the tri state area, this is Trump Watch, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Conrad Tokyo, Sparrow Watch, Politics Politics,
1: CNN and all this. It's sad day from us uh, webcateers, us internauts, because earlier this afternoon, the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality. Yeah, you see, net neutrality, what that really means, it means repealing regulations that prevented your internet provider from blocking certain websites or slowing down your data. Now they can, and that's wrong because the only thing that should slow your internet speed is the number of people also sitting at Starbucks working on their screenplays. (laughs) By killing net neutrality, internet providers can basically do whatever they want, as long as they disclose to their users what exactly they do to web traffic. So get ready for more fine print from your internet provider. At least you'll have something to read while you wait for websites to load. (laughs) But don't worry, folks. Big companies like uh, Verizon and Comcast, who have spent millions of dollars lobbying to be able to block, slow down, or prioritize any web traffic, are assuring their customers that they do not intend to block, slow down, or prioritize any web traffic. Also, the shark lobby says they don't intend to eat people, even though they spent millions lobbying to have their mouths reclassified as sleeping bags.
0: That was Stephen Colbert, host of The Late Show, taping his CBS program last Thursday, hours after the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, voted to eliminate the so-called net neutrality rules that prevented Internet service providers from offering high-speed access to some websites, presumably for a fee, while slowing down or blocking access to others. The five FCC commissioners, including Chairman Ajit Pai, who proposed the measure, voted to approve it by a three-to-two margin along party lines. Hello, and welcome to Trump Watch. At this point, some of our regular listeners may be thinking, "Net neutrality again? Didn't you just cover this episode a few weeks ago? Cover this issue?" And shouldn't you be focusing on the mammoth Republican overhaul that was approved in Congress just hours ago, making President Trump's promise of a, quote unquote, tremendous tax cut for Christmas all but inevitable? It's true that our November 29th episode with New York Times reporter Tiffany Shu was devoted to net neutrality, but that was back when the elimination of it was just in still theoretical stages. A core mission I've always kept close while making this show has been to tune out the noise and focus on the tangible changes happening under the Trump administration. Also, to shine a light on the subjects that we believe are being undercovered in most major news outlets. We have covered the Republican tax bill and will, of course, continue to do shows about it in the new year. But though this is the first major overhaul of the tax code since Ronald Reagan was president over 30 years ago, if you're listening to this show on a computer, phone, or tablet, I shouldn't have to point out why this issue of net neutrality could affect so many of us. And while the earliest provisions of the tax code to go into effect don't begin until next year, despite numerous impending legal challenges to the FCC action— As I say these words, there are currently no net neutrality rules in the U.S. I'll be speaking to Brian Fung of The Washington Post, who's been on the front lines of reporting this issue about what happens now that the FCC has made this major reversal in policy. As Brian reported in his December 15th article, The Never-Ending Battle Over Net Neutrality is Far From Over, Here's What's Coming Next, it was actually in 2005, during the George W. Bush administration, that the first attempt was made to codify FCC policy regarding the way Internet Service Providers, or ISPs, provided access. Classified as a quote-unquote Internet Policy Statement, the document codified four basic online freedoms— freedom to access any web content of the customer's choice so long as it was legal, the freedom to use any online application, the freedom for the consumer to use their home broadband connections on any device, and the freedom to get subscription information from their own providers. The first official FCC net neutrality rules came five years later during the presidency of Barack Obama. Challenged in court on the grounds that it was a federal overreach by FCC Chairman Ajit Pai's former employer Verizon, the net neutrality rules grew out of the FCC's failed attempts to punish the ISP Comcast for blocking peer-to-peer file sharing over the web. Yet, it is worth noting that the FCC didn't simply dismantle the 2010 net neutrality rules on Thursday. They also eliminated the Internet policy statement past during George W. Bush's tenure that I just mentioned. In other words, there are currently no regulations on the books at the FCC overseeing the way that ISPs provide access to the internet. But, as Colbert mentioned at the top of the show, the companies are required to inform the customer of which websites they're throttling, Joining me now to help break down what this will mean for us, uh, for any of us who rely on a fast, unfettered Internet, is Brian Fung of The Washington Post. Hello, Brian. Welcome to WBAI. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Let's start with the man arguably most responsible for eliminating net neutrality in this country, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. Pi was an Obama appointee under an FCC policy that requires two Republican and two Democratic commissioners. Each president also appoints the chairman of their choice. President Trump appointed Pi, a former associate general counsel at Verizon, as chairman. Can you talk a bit about Pi's background and how it could have factored into his decision to toss out FCC rules regulating ISPs?
2: Sure. So Pai is a pretty, um, you know, experienced lawyer, um, very long-time Washington hand. Um, He's got a lot of experience uh, sort of dealing with political types. Um, And uh, I would say he's a pretty um, committed, you know, market-oriented individual. So he believes in the power of the free market um, to improve consumer and business outcomes. Um, And I would say that it's that sort of belief that drove him to Um, take steps to undo the FCC's net neutrality rules.
0: President Obama had to appoint a Republican to the FCC, but he didn't have to appoint someone with a background like Pies that was so closely tied to the telecommunications industry. Do you get a sense of why Obama nominated a former Verizon uh, lawyer to the FCC back in 2011?
2: You know, that's a great question. I don't necessarily have uh, deep insight into um, Obama's thought process when he was nominating, um, you know, certain officials to the FCC. Um, You know, I will say that uh, for Pi to be elevated to be chairman, um, you know, by President Trump, um, that was sort of a natural choice, given that uh, Pi had already been serving on the commission, as you pointed out, under um, the Obama administration. And so it was sort of as soon as um, you know Trump won the election. Uh, everyone in the telecom policy world pretty much said this could be it for the net neutrality rules. You discussed in your December 15th article,
0: the never-ending battle over net neutrality is far from over. Here's what's coming next. The fact that it wasn't just the 2011 Obama-era net neutralities that were thrown out when Pi's proposal was approved by the other commissioners on Thursday, but also the Internet policy statement the FCC approved in 2005. Why do you think that matters?
2: Well, one of the things that um, Pi has consistently talked about is uh, the need for what the industry calls, um, uh, ex post enforcement, meaning, um, that the government only intervenes against internet providers once harm has been demonstrated against consumers. And the theory there is just that for the government to get involved before something has been proven to, to have harmed customers, uh, would really represent, you know, an overarching, um, you know, A kind of interference in the free market. And so, what Pai is doing here is, uh, in his view, he's restoring sort of some of this free market application to government regulation by making it so that it would be the Federal Trade Commission that would go after companies that allegedly misbehave, not the Federal Communications Commission, which uh, tends to design rules and regulations imposed on companies before the fact.
0: So, are you saying that the FTC
2: would be the one monitoring net neutrality? That's right. Under the FCC's new rules, um, the approach would be to shift some responsibility for enforcing net neutrality uh, to the Federal Trade Commission, which is the nation's top uh, consumer protection agency. And generally how it works is the FTC... Uh, is empowered to sue companies that act in allegedly unfair or deceptive ways, it doesn't generally go after companies by writing rules or regulations. It doesn't have that um, congressional authority. So by shifting things to the FTC, um, the FCC is saying, look, we're giving the nation's antitrust regulators uh, you know, a little bit more power to go after companies that misbehave. Um, on the other hand, consumer uh, advocacy groups say, you know, antitrust regulars may not be actually the, the best choice here, given that, you know, there are two issues that are kind of interrelated. One is by the time a case reaches the FTC and you see it through to resolution, maybe there's a settlement or enforcement action, a startup or a small business may have already gone out of business as a result of the ISP's practices. Second, um, you know, it's possible that even as the litigation occurs or moves forward, consumers might still be getting harmed by uh, whatever practices are involved in the suit. So it's possible that antitrust regulators, if they decide to take up the case at all, wouldn't be the most appropriate officials to go after misbehavior.
0: Right. And about those effects on the consumer, one of the most direct predictions I've seen of what doing away with net neutrality regulations at the FCC could mean for the average consumer was in a statement you received from Glenn O'Donnell, an industry analyst at the research firm Forrester. He said, quote, you and I and everyone else who uses the Internet for personal use will see some changes in pricing models for most of us. I expect we will pay more service bundles, social media packages, streaming video packages will likely be bolted on to basic transport for things like web surfing and email. How accurate do you believe this prediction will prove to be?
2: Yeah, so the model that um, they're laying out there is really sort of the nightmare scenario that a lot of consumer groups have laid out, which is sort of this so-called cableization of the internet. So, what happens if you want to access Facebook or Twitter and you have to pay extra to get access to those, um, you know, "quote unquote" channels? You could say, um, you know, in my view, I think the the most egregious examples of net neutrality abuses probably won't come to pass, um, you know, for various reasons. One being um, that it's the smaller companies. Uh, and the smaller startups and websites that really have um, much to fear, it's not the larger websites that can afford to pay off the ISPs if, in fact, the ISPs do ask for, for money um, or do any kind of paid prioritization deal with them. And secondly, uh, the internet providers know that if they were to try and roll out some kind of blocking or throttling or paid prioritization that looked lo- just like that, it would be cause an immediate backlash and would be pretty counterproductive. I think what we're more likely to see are sort of a, you know, cut death by a thousand cuts sort of scenario where internet providers try to offer new business models or new features that on the one hand might look very good to consumers, but on the other hand might threaten to tilt the internet ecosystem in certain ways that may be very hard to detect. Or, you know, if it is Uh, easy to detect, it might be harder to explain to the consumer why that uh, may not be a good thing. Expand a little bit on that. What do you mean that it would be appealing to the consumer at first, but uh, maybe not in our best maybe interest. you an example. Um, you know, one concrete example we've already seen, AT&T, for example, a few years ago, experimented with this program where you could get a discount on your internet service if you agreed to let AT&T track your browsing history and your internet usage history. Uh, and the, the idea behind this was that AT&T could use that data to sell targeted advertising, kind of like how Google does with your use of its services. And... Um, On the one hand, you know, it looks like consumers are getting a great deal because they're getting a discount on internet service. On the other hand, some consumer groups say that's a potentially bad thing because essentially it it makes it so that if you value your privacy, you then have to pay for it. Whereas today, you know, your internet provider already protects your privacy to some degree and it's just bundled into your internet service package. And I'll give you another example. Um, You know, there is a program called Zero Rating, which you may have heard about and Involves essentially a wireless carrier like T-Mobile or Sprint um, saying, "All right, if you want to stream Spotify or Netflix, you can stream all that as pretty much as much as you want, and it won't count against your data cap." And on the surface, this looks like a really great thing for consumers because you know, they're essentially getting something for nothing, they're able to stretch their data plans further than they otherwise might. On the other hand, it gives Spotify and Netflix a significant leg up, whereas perhaps the next Spotify or the next Netflix might be disadvantaged if they're unable to participate in the program or if they have to pay money to participate in the program and they can't afford it. So there are various ways in which that system could theoretically skew the internet ecosystem in ways that favor large incumbents. Another
0: article you published yesterday was days after the FCC repealed its net neutrality rules. The GOP has a bill to replace them. You report that Congresswoman uh, Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee has introduced legislation that would replace some, but not all, of the net neutrality regulations. Can you discuss which of the regulations are and are not included in this bill and what the odds are it has a passing?
2: Yeah, so Blackburn's bill is really interesting, both in terms of its substance and also in terms of its politics. So um, starting with the substance, the the bill does a number of things. It proposes to keep two of the most important provisions of the net neutrality rules. um, That is the the provisions on um, blocking the, the, I'm sorry, the ban on blocking or slowing of websites. But what it doesn't do is almost as important as what it does do and uh, what it doesn't do is include a ban on paid prioritization which is sort of this idea that you know internet providers charging websites for better faster service and uh, you know the internet um, uh, groups and and consumer groups have said paid prioritization is um, really a non-starter because uh, this whole idea behind net neutrality is about making sure that all websites get treated equally and aren't um, you know that large websites aren't aren't you know overly advantaged compared to small websites and so the lack of a paid prioritization provision in this bill to some people is a poison pill and beyond that it also prevents the FCC from uh, ever trying to implement you know rules that looked like the net neutrality rules that just got vacated so for Democrats and a lot of consumer groups uh, this bill isn't Really, a good faith effort. You had uh, Congressman uh, Frank Pallone, who's the top Democrat on the House Energy and Commerce Committee, calling it half baked yesterday. Uh, this is, you know, an interesting way of sort of getting the discussion started. But I don't. This is just a start. I don't think that, um, you know, this bill in its current form is necessarily going anywhere.
0: With an increasing amount of media and telecommunications companies merging uh, with. Disney and Fox in the most recent round, while Time Warner and AT&T battle the Department of Justice for the right to merge. Are there deeper ramifications to these mergers without net neutrality rules in effect at the FCC?
2: There absolutely are. I mean, we're talking about the union of some enormous companies, some of the biggest entertainment and uh, distribution companies on planet Earth. And you know the whole reason uh, this is even happening uh, is because internet providers are looking for new business models and new ways of making money as, Internet service essentially becomes a commodity. And for companies such as AT&T, the natural move is to acquire content that they can then use as a way of getting new customers. So if if AT&T buys HBO, which is a part of Time Warner, for example, it'll make money off of all those people who pay for HBO. But also, you know, it'll be able to bundle HBO in certain ways that might attract new customers or drive new revenue. It'll also be able to gather data on how people watch HBO, for example, and all of that data can be used for marketing purposes. So there are all sorts of ways that internet providers are looking for new ways to monetize content, and it really emphasizes how these internet providers are becoming more and more powerful and um you know in some ways have more control over what the consumer sees and um and and can't see.
0: On December fifteenth, the Russian journalist Leonid Bershidsky Posted an editorial on Bloomberg entitled, Don't be afraid of the net neutrality repeal. Rest assured, ISPs are unlikely to do anything that riles consumers. His first line summarizes his point, quote, Now that the U.S. Federal Communications Commission has killed net neutrality, what happens next? Assuming appeals fail depends on the economic incentives for Internet service providers. These incentives make it unlikely that there will be significant changes to the user's experience,
2: do you agree with that editorial statement? Well, just going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, I think the most egregious net neutrality violations that would have been illegal under the um, you know old rules, we probably won't see them, if only because internet activists have made it such a big deal for an internet provider to be seen blocking or throttling websites outright. But I will say that uh, some of these. Uh, more minor issues that are kind of, they straddle the line, so to speak, or might be debatable violations of net neutrality. We could see some of those. And we're talking about a world in which the regulatory body that was previously in charge of overseeing internet providers, the, the FCC, has kind of relinquished its responsibility by shifting authority over to the FTC. So it's, it's really kind of a whole new era here. Let's talk about some of
0: the appeals Brzezinski was alluding to. You write in your article from yesterday entitled The Net Neutrality Lawsuits Are Coming. Here's what they're likely to say that, quote, consumer groups and some state attorneys general have vowed to sue the FCC to overturn its decision. The first suits could be filed in mid-January, according to some analysts. Can you talk about the challenges the FCC will be facing and what the main arguments in favor of reinstating net neutrality will be?
2: Well, sure. Um, Before I do, though, I should also add to what I was just saying, that this whole debate about net neutrality really comes out of a particular sort of situation we have in the United States where uh, most Americans have very few choices in terms of broadband providers. So this wouldn't really be as much of an issue if, let's say, Internet provider A... Uh, started blocking or throttling your web experience when you could simply switch to internet provider B, C, D, or even E. But the fact that most consumers in America have only one or two choices of internet provider makes this a much more salient issue, which is in part why folks like uh, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman has vowed to sue the FCC and to try and stop this uh, this move. As far as some of the arguments we're going to see, I think you'll see this sort of fall into two different buckets. One will be arguments about uh, you know, the FCC's legal theory, as far as you know its decision to treat internet providers differently or why it decided to change its mind, essentially. And then the second bucket of arguments will be going after the FCC on process and, and how it conducted itself and the sort of decision-making process as we um, were working towards this, this vote.
0: You've been in the room at the FCC for many of the hearings on this issue. Can you talk about some of the aspects of the battle over net neutrality that are being left out of most mainstream news coverage?
2: That's a great question. I think that, you know, this is obviously a very difficult topic to explain in in no large, no small part, I'm I'm sorry, uh, because, you know, a lot of this is very technical. And uh, it all has to do, you know, it's technical both on a technological perspective, but also a legal perspective. And for the most part, a lot of my fellow reporters in Washington have been doing a stellar job of explaining this issue to the public. But it is hard to uh, to understand. And so it often can easily be overlooked by a lot of, uh, a lot of Americans or hard to understand given the, um, the technical aspects of it. So as far as things that have been kind of overlooked. I would say it kind of depends on how far down you want to drill into the legalese, I guess.
0: Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Brian Fung of The Washington Post. He wrote the December 19th article, The Net Neutrality Lawsuits Are Coming. Here's what they're likely to say. You're listening to Trump Watch on WBAI New York. And that's going to do it for this week's show. Reggie Johnson engineered this program live. You can hear all 52 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at soundcloud.com slash WBAI or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is Trump Watch WBAI, or you can also email me directly at trumpwatch at WBAI.org. Happy last day of Hanukkah. Merry Christmas, if you're celebrating it. Happy Kwanzaa or whether you're just taking some much-deserved time off. Have a wonderful holiday season. I'll be back next Wednesday at 6.30 when we'll break down another aspect of the Donald Trump administration. Until then, I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time.